Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. As Ethan said, we've been celebrating our 30th anniversary by pausing for a few weeks to kind of look back over some of what God has done uh, here at Seabreeze over the past 30 years and then to take stock of where we are. And the plan is that we would uh, move into the future with uh, greater clarity. So today is the last message in the series. And so it would follow that this would probably be the message where I uh, lay out the detailed and exciting plans that we're working on for the future. And there are some exciting and detailed plans we're working on. But what I've learned over time is the future tends to unfurl itself more based on what God decides to do than what we decide to do. Planning is important, but oftentimes what we plan ends up changing because of something God's decided to do. So as we look to the future today, I want to take a little different tact. I want to ask you to join me in a very specific prayer as we move into the future as a church. And this is the prayer. It's God's favorite prayer, prayed by God's favorite people about God's favorite place. So let's look at these in turn. First, I'm going to invite you to pray God's favorite prayer for yourself and then for those in this community that you know. What is God's favorite prayer? Well, I think it can be summarized in these three words, God have mercy. Uh, it's said different ways, God forgive me, um, God have mercy, but, but it basically communicates the, the sense that when a person comes to the point where they realize that they have done wrong and they've turned away from God and they turn back to God and they ask for his mercy. Throughout the pages of the Bible, whenever someone prays this prayer in whatever form they pray it, God really begins to go to work. It's a prayer that is his favorite. One of the places we see this in evidence is in the book of Amos in the Old Testament. In Amos chapter 7, God tells the prophet Amos what he is planning to do about Israel's long-term rebellion. He's going to bring judgment on the nation after centuries of rebellion. And this is what we read in Amos chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. I cried out, Amos says, Sovereign Lord, forgive. That's the favorite prayer. Have mercy. Forgive. How can Israel survive? He, He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. And then if you continue to read, God shows Amos the next thing that he's planning to do, plan B. And Amos, again, cries out for mercy because even that plan is going to really be hard. And God again relents. Finally, God describes a third plan, plan C. And Amos says nothing in response to this plan, and this is what happens. Only one of the three plans that God made becomes a reality. Why? Well, the reason is not because the other two were faulty plans, but because Amos asked God for mercy and God relented. Those are two shocking words. God relented. God was planning on doing one thing and he relented. He changed his mind. Now, we do this kind of thing all the time. We change our minds, you know, maybe because we've learned some new facts and that's changed what we want to do. Or maybe it's simply because our mood has shifted and we don't want to do what we planned to do earlier. Or maybe it's because we encounter some obstacles now to our original plan and it's not going to work the way we want it to. And so we've got to change and alter our, our plan. But God is not us. He is sovereign. That's what Amos says in this prayer. He refers to him as the sovereign Lord, which means he's the one who's in charge. He doesn't learn new facts that, oh, thou change the plans. He knows everything. And he doesn't do things based on emotions. He doesn't one day decide, you know, I feel like this, and the other day I feel like that, and that's not the way God is. We are, but not God. And there are no obstacles that 
God can't overcome. So how is it that this prayer can have such sway on the ruler of creation so that he might change his plan and change his mind? Well, the answer is because God has created us, not just Amos, but all of us, to have a relationship with him, to partner with him as we move through life and into eternity. Now, just to be clear, he is the sovereign Lord. He is God. So we are not equal partners in this partnership, in this relationship. He is the managing partner. But something has happened to this original design, this relationship. We have all sinned, which we've done in different ways and in different amounts. But the basic decision of sin is to break with God, to go it alone, to to be independent, to manage our own life, to end the partnership. And whenever we decide to stop our independent ways, and we turn to God, and we cry out and say, God, have mercy. That is the prayer that suddenly changes the break in partnership. No matter how bad it is, no matter how far we've run, at the moment we turn back to God and ask for him to forgive us in Christ, the partnership is back on. Everything changes at that point. Whatever mess we've made with our life, whatever obstacle we're facing now, We're not facing it alone. Now God is going to work to begin to help us unravel this, and it may take a lot of time, but now we have God to help us. And this request for mercy resonates with the very core of God's nature, who he is. This is evident throughout the pages of the Bible. A couple of verses where you can see it. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is who he is. Mercy is close to his heart. That's why this is his favorite prayer. Mercy is his favorite thing. Isaiah 30, verse 18, says it this way, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. We tend to think that if we've moved away from God, we need to cover all of the distance ourselves and do whatever we need to do to get back into God's good graces. But this is the image of God sitting on his throne, longing for us simply to say the words, God have mercy, and then he rises before we can even rise ourselves to show compassion to us and have mercy on us so that he can forgive us and begin to go to work on the mess that we've made. Now, the problem is this is God's favorite prayer, but it is not our favorite prayer. This prayer requires a lot of humility. And a lot of times we, we have to get to a pretty bad place where we will finally cry out, God, have mercy, and humble ourselves. And so what that means is not many people are praying God's favorite prayer. And for the most part, God is ignored entirely. I mean, if things do get bad enough, many people will pray and ask God for help, but not so much for mercy. But there have always been a few who have prayed not only for God's mercy in their lives, but they've extended God's favorite prayer to the lives of the people around them. And people who themselves are not asking for God's mercy, these few have asked that God would be merciful in them as well. And these few who not only cry out for mercy themselves, but cry out on behalf of other people, these few find favor with God because they share his heart of compassion for the people of this world. These are God's favorite people, praying God's favorite prayer. Jeremiah 14, verse 11, 
says this, Then the Lord said to me, speaking of the prophet Jeremiah, Do not pray for the well-being of this, peop- of this people. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where you will hear the three words, do not pray. You won't find these words anywhere else in the Bible. So this stands out as something very different than all the other times where God encourages us to pray. So why would he tell Jeremiah not to pray for these people? Well, the reason is because there is something that God was planning to do, and he didn't want prayer getting in the way. Isn't that surprising? Because what that means is it must be possible that a person's voice can have that kind of impact on God, like we saw in Amos, and now God is saying in Jeremiah. Now, you may be like me when you read something like this and think, well, not my voice. My voice couldn't have that kind of impact. I mean, my voice, I mean, I don't, I don't get a lot of response with my voice. I mean, I couldn't even get a customer service agent to give me what I wanted this last week. That's how ineffective my voice is. And it, and it was her job to do this, but it, my voice didn't have any impact. So it's natural for us to think, how would my voice or your voice impact the one who runs heaven and earth? Is it because God offers a higher level of customer service? I mean, that's what a lot of people kind of think that prayer is. They won't use those words, but that's the approach a lot of people have in prayer. You know, it's the way we get what we want and need. It's how we get what we want from God. We, the problem is, is that reduces the relationship with God to kind of a vendor relationship. It makes him really kind of like a vending machine. You know, as long as you push the right buttons as often as you should and say the right words, then there's a good chance that you'll get dropping from heaven the thing that you want and you can get it then. But if you read on in this passage in Jeremiah, you'll discover that Jeremiah did pray, but God ended up saying no. Jerusalem did fall. Now, we don't know why God said no, just like oftentimes when I've prayed, and clearly I haven't gotten what I've prayed for. I don't always know why that is. But what is clear is that prayer is designed to be a part of a real relationship with God, not just a vendor-type relationship where we place our order. I mean, it's like the relationships we have with one another. In real relationships, we don't just walk up to someone and order things. That's not a good relationship or a relationship that's going to last. No, we, we have conversations. And those conversations do include requests, but the way a conversation works in a relationship is it has an impact on me and on them. The influence kind of goes both ways. And that's the way prayer is designed to be. And just like in our relationships, there are some people that have our ear more than other people. There are some people that have a bigger influence on on us than other people do. Why? Well, they are the people that we're closer to. They are the people that we've had a deeper influence on and they've had a deeper influence on us. And so a lot of people can talk to us, but there are some people that we're close to that they have our ear. You know, if if you have kids, well, your kids, they've got your ear. Not that you can't hear what anyone else says, but you're drawn to what your kids say because of the closeness of the relationship. And so God tells Jeremiah not to pray for mercy on Jerusalem because of the kind of 
relationship that Jeremiah has with God. It's a relationship where there really is influence. But Jeremiah does pray. And so in the next chapter, verse 1 of chapter 15, God responds to Jeremiah's prayer and says this, Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me and pray, my heart would not go out to this people. You see, God was very determined that there, this was the time for judgment to fall on the city of Jerusalem. And the reason is because for 900 years, nine centuries, God had been watching his people do horrendous things. It had gotten to the point at this time where parents were offering their children in sacrifice to these false gods and these idols. God had seen his temple become a place of prostitution, not of worship. And he again and again had seen the weak of the nation abused by the strong of the nation. And finally, even the God who is slow to anger and loves to extend mercy, even he had finally had enough. And he decides to let Jerusalem fall. But then he turns to Jeremiah and says, now don't get in my way here. Don't pray for these people. Because it's the only thing that could possibly alter the attention of God. It's amazing. But Jeremiah, as I said, does pray. And God in this verse that I just read is saying to Jeremiah, you don't understand how serious I am. Even if Moses himself and Samuel himself joined you in this prayer, it's not going to stop me. Now, why is there even a thought that the prayers of these men could stop God? Because this is what had happened in history. 900 years earlier, at the beginning of the nation, when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, Israel had responded to God's mercy by making a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping this false god as if it was this false god that had rescued them out of Egypt and not the one true god. And God had seen this and had told Moses, Moses, we're going to start all over with you. These people are not going to follow me. And Moses had cried out to God and said, God, have mercy on these people. And God relented. So it had happened. And the same thing had happened with Samuel. So the question is this, what is it about Jeremiah and Moses and Samuel that affect God? What is it about these three where God says, all right, even these three aren't going to change my plans in this one? Well, we find out the reason in the New Testament verse of James 5.16. It's speaking of Elijah, another person in the Old Testament whose prayers had tremendous influence on God. And it explains why. It says, Elijah's a person just like you. Don't think he's like glowing in the dark and levitating. He's just like you. But here's why. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, a righteous person is not a perfect person. There are none of those. A righteous person is simply someone who has decided to guide their life by what God says is right. That's why right is the root of righteousness. Not what I feel like is right, not what people around me think is right, but what God has said is right. They have decided, a righteous person has decided to guide their life with that as their compass setting. That is the magnetic north of their life. Now, they may 
kind of wander around and get off track and fall into the ditch. But when they do, they, they get back on track with doing what is right before God. If they fall down, they say, God, have mercy, and they, pick, they get back up, and they start moving forward. And over time, they change. Their life is different. Not perfect, but different. And when a person aligns their life to what God says, it's an indication of the influence that God has had on their life, the influence that the relationship has had on them. And that's the way relationships work. I mean, again, who is it that has your ear? It's those who have been influenced by you. And you have been influenced by them. You've had an impact on each other. You know, in a good relationship, the influence doesn't just go one way. It goes both ways. So here's the way it works in prayer. You cannot influence God in prayer if he has not influenced you in life. If there's no evidence that your relationship with God has changed you in any way, now again, not perfection, but if over time there's no evidence, you're basically doing what you would have done, and then there is no real relationship there. It doesn't mean he can't hear you, but you're probably not going to have the same kind of influence on God as the person who's allowed God to really influence them. That's just the way you're in relationship. That's the way relationships are. So who are God's favorite people? Are they the best? Are they the brightest? No. It's those who have prayed for God's mercy in their own lives, and now they are serious about his ways. They are serious about allowing God to influence and change them. Now the last part of this prayer, God's favorite place. Where's your favorite place? Let me just bring it to mind. Not, not too long. I don't want you to go there in your mind. I want you to stay here. But just where, where's your favorite place? What is it about that place that makes it your favorite? Maybe it's peaceful. That's true of a lot of people's favorite places. It's probably beautiful. That's always a factor that is big when we choose a favorite place. Two weeks ago, I got to spend four days in one of my favorite places. Here's a picture of it. This is Kelowna, British Columbia in Canada. This is where my family lives, most of them. In fact, this is a view from the front window of my parents' house. I was just sitting there a couple weeks ago and thought, I'm going to miss this, so I'm going to take a picture of this. That's what they get to see in the winter. They live on my brother-in-law's family orchard. That's an apple orchard. It's been in the family for quite some time, and they were able to build a, a little house on that orchard where my sister and brother-in-law live. Now, while I was there, it snowed about eight inches. I mean, they call them centimeters, so I have no idea, but it looked like about eight <laughs> inches to me. They changed that after I left, so. And, you know, it reminded me of how much I miss the snow. Now, this may sound strange to you. But I really miss it sometimes, especially this time of year, because that's what I grew up in. Now, I know if I was driving to work in the snow and clearing my own driveway and my sidewalk, I would probably not miss it. But, you know, for four days, snow's amazing. And I, I really enjoyed it. One of my favorite things to do while I was visiting was I loved walking the rows of that apple orchard. You know, this is the apple orchard that they live on. And just walking down the rows and listening to the crunch of the snow. On the, I mean, it was just, oh, I love this place. And I could go on and on, just like you probably could about your favorite place. You get someone talking about their favorite place, and it's hard to get them to shut up. So the question is, where's God's favorite place? 
Now, unlike us, God's not looking for a, a peaceful place to get away from it all because, well, he can't. He's everywhere. <laughs> and he's not looking for beauty because, well, he's the author of beauty. So out of all the places in the world, where do you think would be God's favorite place? You know where it is? It's here. It's Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach is God's favorite place. Now, some of you knew this, but you've now heard it from me. Fountain Valley is his second favorite place. So, Sorry, I, I, I just had to say that. It is a very nice place to live. I'll give you that. No, what I'm saying is it's here. Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, Westminster. This is God's favorite place. Why? Is it the beach? Is it the weather? No. This is God's favorite place because this is where you live. That's where I live. Now, if you live out in Hemet, or if you lived in Riverside, God's favorite place would be there. Why? Because God's favorite place is wherever you are. One of the things we we need to understand is people, not places, are God's favorite. So what God does is he strategically puts us in places for our sake and to help the people he puts around us. We read about this in Acts chapter 17, verses 26 through 27. It says, from one man he made every nation of man. So this all started in the Garden of Eden with Adam, and then it's spread throughout the world that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them, you know, when they would live and die, and the exact places where they should live. Why? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Why is he not far from each one of us? He's one cry of mercy away from being right there. Now, every time you and I are asked to enter our address online or in a form or give our birthday, we're not just stating the day that we happen to be born or the address that we just happen to currently live at. We are doing that, but we're doing more than that. We're stating the time and the place that God determined we should live. Now, these are not general targets that God aimed at. God did just say to you and me, Southern California is somewhere. Now, what does it say here? These are set times and exact places. What that means is the apartment you live in, the house you live in, your address, your birthday is what God wanted it to be. It's set. Now, I don't know how God can do that. I don't understand how he can take the decisions that parents make to have kids and how he can take the decisions that we all make about yeah, I want to move into this house and not that one, and I want to rent this apartment, not that one. I mean, we make those decisions. We decide to move here or somewhere else, and I don't know how God weaves that all together and how it all lands at the birthday and the place that he determined. Yeah, that, that's above me. I don't have the hard drive to figure that one out. You know, God's able to do that and weave that together. I don't understand how, but that's what this says he did. The bigger question is not how does he do that, but why does he do that? Well, the purpose behind getting involved in the time and the place where you and I live is 
not so that we could enjoy the sun or the surf or the snow, but so that, what does it say? We would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So you and I are living where we live, not for the view, but for the people. That's why we're here. Now, how would you living next to your neighbor cause them to seek God? Well, if you do nothing but sit in your house and watch your TV, probably nothing. You, know, you and I are going to have to at least walk out our front door and at least introduce ourselves and at least strike up conversations and at least try to help them and at least love them. And over time, God might use that so that they might cry out God's favorite prayer, God have mercy on me. That's why you and I work where we work, we live where we live, we shop where we shop. That's why we're there. Now, in heaven, I promise you, the view is going to be better than anything here. Even the family orchard that I love so much. Heaven's going to be much better than that. But now, it's all about the people, not the place, not the view. So you are currently living, and I'm currently living in God's favorite place for you. But you know what I often hear? People don't like the place God has them. Not everyone, but... One of the things that shocked me most when I moved here back in 1990 was how many people were trying to get out of Southern California. I mean, I heard just a never-ending litany of, I hate that traffic, and it's so busy. And, and I was just, have you people not lived anywhere else? I mean, I've been a bunch of different places. This is amazing. <laughs> we should fall on the ground and be grateful that this is God's assignment for us. But, you know, just our nature is, we just, you know, we just complain. They don't like the house they live in. They don't like how expensive it is. They don't like their neighbors. They don't like the traffic. And the only reason some people are living here is because they can't afford their dream house or place yet. Or they haven't found a place where they can get out and afford. Or they haven't saved up enough money to get away from the pace and the pressure of Southern California. And here's the problem is, while we are trying to get away from it all, God is trying to get our hearts involved in the people all around us. So why would God move you here? Or if you grew up here, why, why did God have you grow up here? It's so that you could love the people here and so that you could pray for the people here because they're not praying for themselves. Ezekiel 22.30 speaks to this. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I looked for someone among them. Speaking of the inhabitants of Jerusalem at this point. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the entire land so that I wouldn't have to destroy it. But I found no one. Now God's, as I say, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, but he's not talking about a breach in the physical wall of the city. He's talking about what's going on in the unseen spiritual realm. You see, in the Bible, the decision to step up and do your part and pray is, is often spoken of in military terms that the people of the day were very familiar with. You know, ancient cities were walled cities. They lived in fortified cities. They knew what the city walls were for. They were there to protect them from destruction. And they were also well aware of the fact that all the enemy needed to do was open up a small breach 
in those thick walls. And then from that small opening, an entire army could flood into the city and the city would fall. And so whenever that would occur, a cry would be sounded throughout the city to run and defend and stand in the gap. That's what this meant. And those who stood in that gap often paid for it with their lives, but they ended up saving the city. So in Ezekiel 22, God's looking for a person to step up and pray for the city of Jerusalem. The reason is that he doesn't want it to fall. He doesn't want it to be destroyed. God wants to extend his mercy and blessing, but if, if no one steps up and no one prays, then eventually the city is going to fall. Now, what's interesting to me is that God's not looking for an entire army to pray. He's just looking for one person. Most people in Jerusalem had no idea. I mean, if it was a physical army outside, oh, they'd know that the city was in danger. But they, they couldn't see the spiritual forces aligned against the city. They had no idea how dangerous things were. They couldn't see the breach in the wall, and they were living in ignorance. Here in our area, we don't have a walled city here in Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, Westminster. We, we don't live behind walls. But we do face the same spiritual danger. The enemy has long been at work to erode the truth of God from this place and to replace it with lies that will destroy those who live here. He's at work right now driving division into families and marriages that will end up having devastating effects for decades to come. He's doing everything he can to get the citizens of these cities to waste their lives on stuff that really will not not matter for anything in eternity. And the best line of defense that this city has against that is churches like ours. Jesus himself, when he first spoke of the church, said that the gates of hell could not prevail against the church. He's using the imagery of a walled city. Now, here at Seabreeze, you know, we're, we're at most 1,000. Not huge. It's a lot, but not, a, not huge. Especially when you think of that up against, what, over 200,000 in Huntington Beach? You know, surrounding area, you know, half a million? What, what can we do? Well, what we can do is we can stand in the gap on behalf of this place so that God's mercy and not his judgment will fall here. We can pray, and we can love those that God has put around us. You see, in a city this size, words that are sent heavenward are pretty few and sparse. And the offense that is generated by what's going on in this city is massive, the offense towards God and his ways. There is a huge breach in the wall of prayer that surrounds this city. And so the question is, who's praying for this city exactly? It's probably not those who don't live here. They don't even know about this place. You see, no one cares for this place like we do. We live here. These are our neighbors. These are our coworkers. These are the people that our kids go to school with. These are our friends. This is our our place. 
So we have to be the ones to pray for these people because for whatever reason, they're not praying for themselves and no one else is praying for them. So what I want to say is if this is not your favorite place and this is where you live, it needs to become your favorite place until such time as God clearly tells you to move. Now is not the time for you to search for and move to your very favorite place. That's called heaven. Now is the time for God's favorite place, and that's called here and now. Now, as I said, if God moves you, then that's his new favorite place for you. But, boy, you better be sure God's moving you. Don't move yourself in search of heaven here on earth because you're so tired of how expensive it is here. You're so upset with the traffic. You're so you know, God, God doesn't give us assignments that are hard and say, you know, if it gets too hard, just go ahead and bail. <laughs> no. This is where God has you. Now, he may move you, and that's fine if he does. But make sure it's him moving you, not you moving you. Because when we complain about this place, we're grumbling against God's favorite place for us. And I don't know what this means for you, but I want to give you just a real practical example of something more recently that it's meant for me. This is going to maybe sound silly to you, but it means a lot to me. And the reason is because, having grown up in Canada, I'm a big hockey fan. And I just have to tell you, it took me a long time to become a Ducks hockey fan. (laughs) The, The Ducks are the local NHL hockey team. And I remember when this team was started in the 90s. I don't know how many of you know who started the team. Disney. Um... What was the team name based on? A Disney movie. Now, in my opinion, this is just me, hockey is the toughest sport on the planet. I mean, just go watch it at ice level. Those are some tough dudes. And, you know, a duck is anything but tough. And so when Disney, first, first of all, I was like, what does Disney know about hockey? And I remember going to some of the earlier games in Wild Wing. Oh, my, this is embarrassing. Wild Wing, <laughs> who is the mascot of the Ducks, would repel out of the rafters with this big duck bill. And I just, and the duck calls it, and I would just be like, oh, this is not hockey. This is an affront to hockey. These are not real hockey fans. And I, I had an attitude. And it became a subtle way for me to be critical of this place. If you've known me for very long, you've heard me complain about the ducks. <laughs> now, it's, you know, it's our team, and so if I'm going to watch hockey, I'm going to go to a ducks game. And so I started early going on, watch them play the Canadian team, so I could, at least I could hear the Canadian national anthem. <laughs> but over time, I've, I've moved my heart to the point where I will actually, I, I, I really am a ducks fan. I, I, I cheer for the, fan, uh, the, the ducks. But, you know, as I was preparing this message a couple weeks ago, I realized that there was still a little movement for me to go on this because I've been talking about buying a Ducks jersey for years. (laughs) And I just never did it. Partly, they're expensive. Hockey jerseys, like authentic, they're, they're expensive. And the other thing is, well, they're the Ducks. 
you know? And so as I was preparing this message, I realized, you know what? I gotta, this is, may seem small and significant, but I got to move my heart all the way here. So I went out and I bought a Ducks <laughs> hockey jersey. So here I am. It's taken 28 years, but I'm finally all here. <laughs> now, please don't tell my Canadian relatives that I bought one. I'll break it to them easy in some way. Now, now, hear me on this. I'm not saying that you can't root for whatever your home team was growing up that maybe you moved from. or I'm not saying that. I don't know what it means for you. But just for me, this was just one way where it's like, you know what? I've got to move my heart here. I've got to stop griping and groaning about the local team. And so you've got to decide what it is for you. So the question again is this. Who's praying for your family and your neighbors and your friends? I'm not because I don't know them. God has put you where he's put you and me where he's put me to pray for the people of this community. And if we don't pray for them, no one will. They, they, they're not praying for themselves. We need to pray God's favorite prayer for them. God, have mercy on this place and on these people. You know, all over this city tonight, people will go to bed believing the lie that what they really need most is someone or something. And then they'll wake up tomorrow and they will waste yet another day in pursuit of that someone or that something, only to decide later that what they really needed is someone else and something else. People spend their entire lives on this treadmill of not this one, that one. Not this thing, that thing. Not this job, that job. Not this place, that place. And before you know it, you're 80 and you're 90 and you've just run that treadmill and your life has been drained. Time marches on and hundreds of thousands miss God. So as you pray, put in the effort to take the ways of God seriously. Grow in righteousness. Become one of God's favorite people. Not the elite. None of us are that. But the people who over time allow God to influence how we live life and what we do and what we value. And then accept the place that God has for you. This is God's favorite place. Your body is here. You might as well move your heart here. God has you here for as long as he has you here for a purpose. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this place, the neighbors you've put around us, people we work with, the friends that we've been able to develop. And God, we just we pray for your mercy to fall on this place and on these people. We live in a time when <clears throat> the lies of the enemy are thick and pervasive. And so we ask that you would open the, the hearts of the people that we know and love. Father, I pray that you'd help us to grow in our righteousness. Boy, we need your help with that. But we ask for help. And we thank you that you are a God who longs to be gracious. You rise to show compassion to us. And we pray that you would rise and show compassion on this city.
and on this place. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.